0: So good seeing all of you guys as you make your way back to your seats. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead um, and turn to, to 1 Corinthians. Um, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is who we are. Lord, as we look at our text, we discover that we are your temple, your building, your field. As we sang some of these truths, we are your people, your family, that you have bought and redeemed. And Lord, help us to never take that for granted. Help us to realize the wonderful privilege we have in you. And Lord, as we come to you in desperation, as we open up your word, can you speak to us, Lord, you know what we're going through, you know uh, what we're experiencing, you know what we're facing, you know our struggles, our fears, you know our doubts, our insecurities. Lord, can you minister to us? Can you reveal truth to us? In your spirit, open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, so that we may read your word, understand your word, be convicted by your word, and may it be more than just information we receive, but may it transform our hearts, and may it lead us into joyful obedience. Lord, please come and make yourself known. And if there's someone in here who does not know, you've not surrendered their life to you, Lord, can you speak to them? Can you call them? Can you enable them to respond in faith as they trust in you? And so come, Lord, come, Holy Spirit, and fill this place as we hear the word proclaimed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians as we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, in this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, what Paul is doing, he's trying to reason... And persuade uh, the the church of Corinth and he's addressing ten issues and basically in all these ten issues that he is addressing the main theme that he's trying to communicate to the church in Corinth is that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature and purity and unity and what he means by maturing and purity is this idea of that the church the people of God who are holy who've been set apart by God are the ones who who are supposed to look more distinct from the world different from the world so in a sense what he is saying is that the more distinct the church looks from the world the more different and set apart it looks from the world the more it will mature in unity so another way of looking at it is the more that the church loves jesus and looks like jesus the more it will grow in its love for one another. And so this is what's going on in this letter as he's addressing these 10 issues. And so this is my hope for us as a church as we study this book, that as we grow in purity, as we start to become more distinct from this world, look different from the world, and love Jesus the more, the more we will grow in our love for one another. Now for four weeks, we've kind of talked about unity as Paul's really addressing the first issue of division in the church. Uh, the, The church in Corinth were dividing over church leaders. And basically what they were doing is they were reflecting the culture that they lived in. And so what Paul is doing, Paul is appealing for unity and really the main basis for their unity is that the gospel requires the church to be united and it is the gospel that ultimately unites the church. And so what he's been doing over the last kind of two, two and a half chapters is really unpacking what it looks like and how the gospel requires us to be united and how the gospel unites us. And so he reminds the church in Corinth, like what is central to the gospel message, A crucified Savior. The world looks at the gospel message and it sees it as foolish and weak. And yet we know that the gospel message of a crucified Savior is the power and the wisdom of God. And so if that is true, what does that mean for us? That means we don't follow worldly values and wisdom, but rather we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. And then he, he reminded them that the followers of Christ are mostly low-status people. Like if you think about how the world chooses people, the world chooses the best, the brightest, the smartest, the strongest. And who does God choose? God chooses the weakest, the uneducated, the not influential the disdained by the world. Why? So that no one may boast before him in his presence. And so if that is true, what does that mean for us? That means that we as followers of Jesus who've been called by God and chosen by God, we walk in humility as God's chosen people. And then he reminds the church that the message that they've heard proclaimed about a crucified Savior is not a display of man's wisdom and man's power, but rather is a display of the Spirit's power. That means the reason for their conversion, the reason for them understanding the gospel, is not because Paul did such a great job explaining it to them, but rather the Spirit opened up their ears, their eyes, and their hearts so they may respond to the gospel message. And that means their faith mustn't be in some teacher, but rather in Christ and in Christ alone. And then he reminds them that God revealed his wisdom to his people through his spirit. That they have the spirit of God living inside of them, so they need to walk in step of the spirit. So that's been Paul's argument about addressing division in the church. So you're thinking to yourself, well, all of this is about the gospel. What does it have to do about division and unity? What Paul really is doing, he laid this gospel foundation. And now in chapter three, we're going to get to it. He's going to directly rebuke the division. He's going to give them two warnings. The warning to church leaders, church teachers, and the warning to everyone. And then he's going to give an exhortation. So let's look at uh, chapter three. We're going to try to wrap up the entire chapter uh, today, this morning. Let's look at uh, First Corinthians chapter three, verse one. It says this, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you're still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, Are you not acting like mere humans? So so let's stop here. So if you're taking notes, here's the very first rebuke that Paul offers. If you're taking notes, is this is that division among Christians is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Division among Christians is a sign of spiritual immaturity. So what's Paul doing? How is he rebuking the church of Corinth? He's saying, you guys aren't acting like grown-ups. You're acting like a bunch of babies. By now in your walk with the Lord, you should have grown up in your salvation. You should have been able to now eat solid food, adult food, but yet you're still acting like a bunch of babies drinking spiritual milk. Now here's the question we gotta ask ourselves. What does Paul mean by this metaphor of them simply being babies, drinking milk, instead of mature adults eating solid food? When the Corinthians were first converted, Paul says, I fed you like infants. So in fact, the Bible describes us at our time of conversion, regeneration, we've been born again. Jesus talked about it uh, in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Peter continues with this metaphor and he says like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Paul talks about like if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so the Bible describes us as if we're in Christ and we've been recently converted we are infants in Christ and we're being fed spiritual milk in other words as infants in Christ we're getting to understand the basics of the gospel we're not being overwhelmed by the glories of the gospel and all its implications and all of its effects for all of life but rather just understanding the basics of the gospel what is the gospel what does it mean to be in Christ And so the the idea of them acting like infants and not adults is that they haven't really grown in their gospel understanding. They haven't transitioned from understanding the gospel in the simplest form, milk, to now understanding the gospel in all of its glories and all of its effects and all of its implications. And, And... one of the things that we kind of have to get rid of, because I know for many of us, how we grew up in church, we have this idea, and I think it's a wrong idea. I normally don't say an idea is wrong, but this idea is wrong, okay? We have this idea that it is wrong, that, so, that, that spiritual milk is the gospel, and then solid food is moving beyond the gospel. That is a wrong idea because what does that teach us? That teaches us that we need to graduate from the gospel, that the gospel is a past event that occurred in our lives. And the problem with that is now we see no relevance to the gospel in our lives for today. And yet if we think about it, the gospel is such a simple thing in a sense because it is Christ's work on the cross on our behalf through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We can kind of all understand it. And yet in its most complexities, what does it mean for us as a believer? Like I have been redeemed, I have been reconciled, I have been adopted. Now I am in Christ, united with Christ, heir to the throne. Jesus is my older brother and I am part of the family of God. And those truths of who I am in Christ impacts every aspect of my life. It impacts how I act as a husband, how I act as a father, how I act as a pastor or a friend. And so every issue that I struggle with that I deal with has somewhat gospel implications. And for some of you, you are like thinking, what is this guy talking about? That is the solid food, brothers and sisters. Understanding the relevance of the gospel in every implications and every situation of our lives and what that means for us. So when Paul is saying hey I, y'all should have been getting off the milk and started actually eating steak he's not saying move beyond the gospel but what he is saying is you need to mature in your gospel understanding by now because think about it how does the gospel speak into division well there shouldn't be division why because we're all united In Christ. Yeah, I might prefer Paul over Apollos, or I might prefer Apollos over Paul, but that's not worth dividing over because we're all united in Jesus Christ. And so we never graduate. And so Paul says basically, hey, part of the reason for your division, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. That's a a sign of a lack of gospel understanding. And so whenever the church divides, over non-important secondary issues, it reveals a lack of spiritual maturity. It reveals a lack of gospel understanding, which means where do we need to grow if we need to remain united? We need to grow in our gospel understanding. Uh, The second rebuke Paul offers in in this passage we read, division among Christians, if you're taking notes, is a sign that they're not acting in the spirit but rather in the flesh in other words the church of corinth how should they be acting like they should be acting like people of god who have the spirit of god and been transformed by the spirit of god and yet in their division over church leaders They're acting as if they don't have the spirit. They're acting like mere humans who live in a fallen world without the spirit. Now, one of the things that some people have taken, they take that passage and say, oh, it describes two types of Christians. The carnal Christians that constantly lives in the flesh and the mature Christians that have the spirit of God. I will say that is incorrect again. What kind of Christian do you have? One, the one who has the Spirit of God. Even if you are in a moment of weakness or acting in the flesh, where's the Spirit of God? Still inside of you. So what Paul is saying is, you're not acting the way you're supposed to be acting. He's not making excuses for them. He is saying, if you are in Christ, You've been regenerated, and you have the Spirit of God in you. Then walk like you have the Spirit of God in you. But what you're doing is you're walking as if you do not have the Spirit. So be reminded of who you are: God's chosen people, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because again, think about uh, this passage. And two weeks ago, in chapter two, what was this main point the whole time? you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And if you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you have the mind of Christ. And if you have all these things, that should impact on how you you live and how you act so these are the direct rebukes that Paul offers to the church in Corinth. And I think it's applicable to us. Like if there's division in the church, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. That means we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. And if, it's, if we understand the gospel and we can say, then the second rebuke is like, then we're acting like we don't have the spirit. Which we all know that if we're in Christ, we have the spirit of God. Let us not act like the world. And so Paul's rebuke, let's just be honest, his rebuke seems harsh. But now Paul is going to give a reason for this harsh rebuke by reminding them that church leaders are not important, but they're merely servants. Look at verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants, nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. So what's Paul doing? He's reminding the church in Corinth. Hey guys, don't divide over church leaders, why? Because church leaders are mainly servants of God. They are the human instruments that God has used where you came to believe the gospel. So it's foolish to rank the church leaders or the God's servants according to the role that God has given them. Like in in other words, what he's doing to, to make this point, he's using this metaphor of growing a crop in a field. What does Paul and Apollos do? They're both servants of God. They're farm workers, farm hands. One plants, the other one waters. In other words, they are co-workers working together because what's the point to water a seed if there is no seed? And what happens to a seed if there's no water? Both are necessary. But yet, what's the most important part? The growth. Was Paul and Apollos responsible for the growth? No. Who is? God is. He is the one that takes the seed and causes it to grow. So here's the point that Paul is making church leaders are servants of God, instruments in the hands of God, teammates, co workers working towards the same goal under the supervision and blessing of god he supervises the work he causes the seed to grow and then he rewards accordingly to the faithfulness of the servant and so i think in his after his rebuke here's the reason for the harsh rebuke if you're taking notes and here's the truth we need to understand we're all servants we're all coworkers working towards the same goal under the supervision of the same God. And one day we'll enjoy the blessings if we're faithful by the same God. So why divide if we're coworkers? Why divide if we all have the same goal? Why divide if we all have the same supervisor? Why divide if God is going to reward each, every one of us accordingly to the faithfulness of our work this is Paul's point there's no reason to divide because even in all of our differences here's what we can all establish I'm a servant you're a servant we're on the same team God's team we all have the same goal what's the goal make disciples proclaim the gospel make disciples What's our job? Our job is simply to proclaim. Who's the one who does the growth? God is. Who's the one that supervises all of it? God does. And if I'm in the wrong, who's the one that's going to correct me? God is. He's the supervisor. And who's going to reward you for all of your faithfulness and your hard work? God is. So let's be reminded of these truths. There's no reason to divide over these things. And what is interesting in verse 9, he he describes the church teachers as the field workers, and then he describes the church as the field. But then he changes the metaphor from a field to construction, to a building. You are, look at the end of verse 9, you are God's field and you are God's building. And now what he's going to do with the changing of this metaphor, he's now going to offer a warning, two warnings. The first one is for church leaders. There's a warning for us. The second one is for everyone. So if you are a church leader, which means if you have a leadership position whereby you're teaching people, leading people in one way or another, you need to listen up because this warning is not just for me, this warning is for you, so let's pay attention. If you're not a church leader, you can kind of breathe a little sigh of relief, but still pay attention because maybe you will become a church leader. And then the second warning is for for everyone, okay? Let's look at verse 10 here. And again, he's changed this metaphor from a field to building. Uh, Verse 10 says this, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So let me give you the warning, and let's unpack the warning. So here's the warning. Church leaders, if you're taking notes, church leaders must take care on how they build God's church. Church leader, take care on how you build God's church. Now, I think we can read this passage in light of Psalm 127. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the the Lord builds his house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen watch in vain. So, what does that mean? Who is the ultimate one building the house? God is. But what does the builder do? He builds. Okay? So, what kind of building has Paul in mind? Who's the building? the people of God, the, the church is, okay? So we kind of have to take our mind not on houses today, but let's go back to the ancient Near East where magnificent were built, buildings were built, but they weren't built in a year. They took decades and even centuries. And in the process of constructing these magnificent buildings, you will have several builders over the decades and over the centuries contribute to the building. So let's just be honest. If you're a fresh, healthy builder, you can contribute three, four decades if you're lucky. Okay? It might take three, four decades just to lay the foundation and to put in a couple cornerstones. And so that's this imagery that he is using here. And so if the church is God's building, and when I say the church, I'm not meaning this building or a location. I'm meaning the people of God. The church leaders must be careful in how they build. And Paul says this, and I think verse 10 is is, is helpful. He says this, according to God's grace that was given to me. So in other words, what strengthened and gave Paul the wisdom and the skill to lay the foundation? God's grace. So in other words, church builders, you're not building the church on your own. It is by God's grace through his spirit that has strengthened you and gifted you and given you all you need to build his church. And the first warning is this is be careful on how you build the church on its foundation that was laid. So here's the first reason church leaders must take care in how they build God's church. The first reason is each builder must take care on how he builds God's church is that once the church is established, once the foundation is laid, one cannot relay the foundation because verse 11 says this. The foundation is what The foundation is Jesus Christ. So in other words, be careful in how you build God's church. If the foundation is established, you can't relay it or build off the, off the foundation. What happens when a building starts veering off the foundation? The building becomes unstable. So as a church leader, your number one responsibility as you're building God's church is to make sure that the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the second it starts veering off, it starts getting off by a half an inch and an inch. As you lay the next block, that inch starts increasing to an inch and one sixteenths. And the the longer the wall is, the more it veers off. Before the last block you lay, you're like, Oh, it's not in a foundation. And so what do we do? Quickly dig a little deeper, throw some mortar on it. No one will notice. That building becomes unstable. So in other words, in a practical term, church leaders make sure that in your leading of the church, it is in line of the gospel and it does not veer off from the gospel. But then the second reason, he says, not only must you make sure that you build in line of the foundation that is Jesus Christ, but then the second reason is this. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. In other words, not only is the quality of your work going to be judged, But the type of material you use is going to be judged. So if you use cheap, perishable, flammable material, guess what's going to happen when it's being judged by fire? It's going to burn up. So not only do we have to make sure as church leaders we build in line of the gospel, but we also have to make sure we use the best of material, the most costliest material. Now now you're like, what does that mean? Well we think about Paul has constantly compared worldly wisdom, worldly values with godly wisdom, godly values. Think about our culture, and think of even about the culture of today of 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 in that ancient near world. Like, what does our world want? We want something fast, immediate, Easy, cheap, big results. So if you're planning on building a house, when do you want that house to be done? Yesterday, right? Like, like, I don't care what it takes, make sure you do it right, and let's create cheap materials that is easier to handle, that we can throw up there, that can show the customer instant results of look how fast their house is being built. No one wants to handle a one ton or two ton granite block for the walls, why? Because in order to lay just that block, it takes heavy machinery and tons of time just to set the block. And what do you have to show for? Oh, look, a block is laid. But in our culture, results. Let's get it done. Let's do it fast. So it looks good from appearance, but a little wind comes, a little fire comes, blows up and smokes. And what that means for the church, honestly, like as church leaders, I constantly find myself tempted because what do all of you guys demand from your pastor? Pastor, we demand results. We want to see the church grow. We want to do things this. And so I find myself constantly tempted. Maybe there's a shortcut. Maybe we can do this to create instant results. Who wants to put in the long, slow work of discipling people? No one wants to do that because it doesn't show results immediately. How many of you have been following Christ for 20 years now? I'm not seeing much results right now, am I? Are you seeing any results? But we find ourselves tempted of wanting to gear off, wanting to draw a crowd, giving the things what people ultimately want. And like church leaders, we use cheap material because no one's going to notice it. It's gonna look good, it's gonna be instant results, we're gonna high five one another and say, look at this church that we've built. And yet the Lord is gonna come and he's gonna test it through fire. And it burns up and smokes. Uh Uh-oh, I should have persevered. I shouldn't have cut corners. I should have done the long, slow, hard work of listening to the Lord and faithfully making disciples. And in that warning, there's encouragement. What's the encouragement for the church leader who makes sure he builds in line on the foundation? He uses the costly material and he feels like, man, I am up against the wall. I feel like like I'm taking two steps forwards and 10 steps back because now I gotta pick that block up and reset it again because it moved off a little bit. What's the encouragement part? What What encourages us? God will reward you. According to the work you've done. Like there is a reward that is waiting for you at the end. It might seem hard now and it might seem discouraging because you feel like your entire life, all you've laid is just one big block. And yet God's going to be revealed and God's going to reward you. And for the church leader who uses costly, who uses perishable materials and cheap materials, there's a warning but then that does not mean they forfeit their souls why because God accepts them not because of what kind of material they've used but because what Christ has done on their behalf but the Lord will still reward them according to their faithfulness and the work they've done and that's what he means by escaping by the fire and yet their souls will be saved Because it's saved on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. So church leaders, work hard. Be faithful on how you build God's church. Don't deviate from the gospel. Don't use cheap material that might make people happy. Because it's instant and and we can see the results. Put in the long, slow, steady work of making disciples. Disciples trusting that the lord is going to reward you at the end be encouraged by that so now that the church leaders have paid attention now everybody pays attention because here's the second warning look at verse verse 16 and i think it's like a wonderful promise and a uh, very harsh warning verse 16 says this don't you yourselves know that you are god's temple and the spirit of god lives in you Let's just stop there. Think about that incredible truth. What is what is Paul reminding the church of Corinth, even in their fleshy acting of spiritually immature, what does he tell them? You are God's temple. The spirit of God lives inside of you. Think about that wonderful promise, that wonderful encouragement. Okay, you might have been acting a fool a little bit. But that doesn't change who you are. You're God's temple. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And because that promise and encouragement is so great, that's what makes the warning so severe. Look, Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, AKA God's church, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy And that is who you are if you're taking notes the warning fill in the blanks it's easy God will destroy anyone who attempts to destroy his church he's describing the church as his building his temple and even think about the theme of the temple in the old testament what was the temple the temple was where god dwelt among his people in the new testament god continues to dwell among his people but where inside in the church inside of them because the spirit of god lives where inside of all of us who are in christ and so if the first warning was for the builders who construct the building the second warning is for anyone because anyone can destroy the church not just that that warning can be for the church leader who attempts to destroy the church that can be for the member who attempts to destroy the church and that can even be for the non-member for the world you're like okay how do people attempt to destroy the church well church leaders can attempt to destroy the church by teaching false doctrine abusing people for personal gain it's all about the salaries the private jets the airplanes you are a means to an end guess what the warning is for you church leader if you do that god sees you god's going to destroy you what's that destruction look like eternal condemnation for the member of the church how can you destroy the church by starting rumors That leads into division by drawing sides, us versus them. And the warning is, you do that, God is going to destroy for the world who's persecuting the church, who's trying to eradicate the church of Jesus Christ. What's that warning? God is going to destroy you. And the reason why God will destroy temple destroyers because the temple is God's. It is holy. This is a warning in Scripture. Warnings must be taken seriously. And if we are guilty of them, These warnings should stir our hearts to confess it and repent of it. That's why I think Paul, first of all, reminds us of who we are first. You are who? God's temple. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. Remember that. Now pay attention to the warning. That does not mean, oh, we can just take the warning and throw it to the side. No, we now pay attention to the warning. And as we pay attention to the warning and we look in the mirror, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, I might have been guilty of that. What does that mean for me then? You confess it. You repent of it. That warning is supposed to be taken seriously. Um, Then he offers an exhortation and then we're done. We'll do some application. Verse 18 says this let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age let him become a fool so that he can become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God since it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise are futile so let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So Paul kind of returns back to the fact that God's wisdom is far superior to the world's wisdom. And for us to acquire God's wisdom, we almost have to become fools according to the world. But here is, in verse 21, here's the exhortation. Let no one boast in human leaders. Let no one boast if you're taking notes in church leaders. Think about this. Compare the wisdom with God and the wisdom with the world. What do the world do when it comes to their leaders? They boast in them if they perform. And if they fail, what do they do? They break them down. Let's just be honest. What's Paul saying? Not so with you. God's wisdom, we do not boast in our leaders. Now, for sure, leaders are a gift of God. They are a grace of God to His church. But why do we not boast in church leaders? Look at this phrase here. For everything is yours. It's it's mentioned in verse 21. And it's mentioned at the end of verse 22. Everything is yours. What does he mean by that? Church leaders belong to you. They are a gift to you from God. And as God's people, everything is ours. Why? Because everything belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to Christ. And if we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, then we belong to God and everything is ours. And and this phrase, remember um, in in chapter 1, the church was guilty of saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas. When he is saying everything is yours, he's basically saying, nah, uh, uh, you don't belong to Paul, you don't belong to Cephas, Paul belongs to you, Cephas belongs to you, because everything is yours in Jesus Christ. They are gifts from the Lord. And that is the point that he's trying to make and the slogan that he is changing. so so let's wrap it up in application here sorry i didn't have application in your notes but maybe the lord can give you a special application um in this text there's three things we can assume about a believer in christ here's the first thing we can assume that i think the text is clearly saying over and over again we you are god's holy temple you're built on the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ, and you are filled with God's Spirit. That's important truth for you to understand. Who are you? You're God's temple. We are God's temple. You're built on the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ that He's accomplished for you. You are filled with His Spirit. Okay? Now, we also see in our text, even though that is true, we are still, in a sense, capable of spiritual immaturity and living like people of the flesh. We're capable of doing it, but does that change the first truth? No, it doesn't change the first truth. If the first truth is true, and we're still capable of spiritual immaturity and living like people of the flesh the third truth we have to understand is the first truth what do we have the holy spirit what's the holy spirit doing working in us he is working in us why is he working in us so that when we find ourselves acting spiritually mature immature acting like people of the flesh causing divisions with rumors or whichever way we can be confronted by the warning knowing that the first truths are true i am god's holy temple built on the foundation of jesus christ the spirit lives inside of me and he's working in me and he is through me so when i'm faced with this warning i don't have to be crushed I can be convicted and I can see my sin as sin and I can freely confess it and repent from it because who am I? I'm God's temple. I'm built on His foundation. I have the Spirit. Like, do you see this almost this tension? Because I know for some of you, you want to take a whip and just beat yourself to death. Like, I'm not worthy. Oh, woe is me. And then some of you want to take your sin and just kind of like, yeah, let's just not, that's not me. It's no, the truth is you are God's temple. You're built on Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the truth is all of you have been guilty of spiritually immaturity and acting like people in the flesh, and for some of you, you've been more responsible than others than causing division. And rather than feeling singled out or called out by me, I'm not making eye contact with any of you, you can walk out of here saying, yeah, that's true. I can deal with my sin. I can confess it. I can repent from it because of what Christ has done. I don't have to be crushed by it. I don't have to pretend it doesn't exist. Like, like we as God's people should be the most open, transparent people when it comes to our sin. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what I mean. And I think this is what Paul is meaning with solid food growing in our gospel understanding so that when we're confronted by our sin, we don't have to be angry. We don't have to feel defeated. We don't have to pretend it doesn't exist. We can say, yeah, I've messed up. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Can you forgive me? Lord, can you forgive me? I I repent. I turn from that. And then Paul reminds the church That the even the greatest leaders, they're only servants, and their labor, and their fruitfulness is a result of not their skill, result of God. And if that is true, because our gifts and our service are according to God's grace, a we don't take credit when good things are happening, and b. We don't get crushed when bad things are happening. Church leader, listen to this truth. You are a servant of God. You've been given a task. Church, your leaders are a gift from God. And when they're doing something right, it's because of God. And when things are falling apart, God is working even in the midst of it. Because who's the supervisor? Don't be crushed by it. Say, Lord, help me to learn from this. Expose to me my sin. Help me to repent. Because what's true for the church leader and the church, we are the church, which means we are God's temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the Spirit working inside of us. And as we get to communion, guess what? That truth reiterates in the cup and in the bread. We are God's people built on the work that he has done for us, his body given to us, his blood shed for us. We have the spirit of God living inside of us and taking these truths and these realities and hitting us and confronting our sins so that we may joyfully confess and repent and say, what an incredible savior I have. So let me pray for us, and let's get into communion. Lord, thank you that we are your temple. We are your building. You are committed in building us up because you are committed to your church. And what a foundation we have, an unmovable, unshakable foundation. The rock of Jesus Christ and his work is finished on our behalf. And Lord, when it seems like the construction is moving slow, and it seems like it's like two steps forwards, five steps back, we can be encouraged because you're the ultimate supervisor. You're building your church. And you even said to Peter, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And your church is this magnificent building that you are building and you're using us as human instruments to build it. Lord, may we as your church leaders be faithful in building it in line of the gospel, doing the long, slow work. Lord, and as your building, as your people, may we be in awe of the grand architect that is you, Lord Jesus, the foundation. Without you, we will not be able to stand. And may we trust in your spirit to continue to work in us, Lord, forgive us for the times when we were spiritually immature. Forgive us at the times when we were grumbling, when we did not like things. Forgive us when we spoke ill of a brother or sister and not giving them the benefit of the doubt. Forgive us for the parts we might have played in causing division in the church. Lord, may we repent of this. May we trust in you. May we be reminded that we are your temple. We're built on you and you've given us your spirit.